You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. When I graduated from Bible college, I just knew that I was going to turn the world upside down. I was excited, I was pumped, I was passionate about getting out and doing ministry. And when Nicole and I moved to Chandler 13 years ago, we were full of that optimism and idealism. But unfortunately, the real world, the realism of life took hold very quickly. We hadn't even finished unpacking the truck when I began to realize that things weren't going to go perhaps as smoothly as I'd hoped or I'd pictured. We were coming to church that this church, Faith Church, was running right at 40 people at the time, and uh, I was hoping that we were going to reach a lot of people in the community. We were going to build that church that our friends and neighbors would would join. That's what I was passionate about. And we were unloading the truck, and my father and mom, they'd come to help us unload the truck, and we hadn't even finished unloading the truck, and one of the guys from the church that showed up actually told my dad while we're unpacking the truck, yeah, my wife and I, we've been thinking about going to a different church because it's such a far drive to get here. And my dad was like, let my son unpack his stuff first before you exit. And what they hadn't told us in Bible college is that oftentimes when a church goes through a transition in leadership, people who have maybe been thinking about finding another church or backing out, that that time of transition is the time that they say, like, well, this is probably a good time for us to bounce. And so that first month, about seven people left the congregation. And seven people may not sound like a lot, but when there's only 40 people in the congregation total, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. Actually, last week was the first week we made the shift of going to two services every Sunday, and it was, it was, it was went well. It went great. I was so excited because the first service, this 930 service, was over 50% full, and that was the smaller of the two services. The 11 o'clock was about 75% full, and neither one of those services was as empty as that, those first services when I came here as pastor. But I wasn't daunted. I said, we're going we're gonna to reach people in here in our community. And so every evening, I was either going out to make visits with our founding pastor and the guy that I followed, Bob Helms. And he was introducing me to people that he knew, making sure that I met people in their community. And then on the other nights, Nicole and I would go and we'd have dinner with members of the church in their home to get to know them. And then on Saturdays, I would go with Daryl Alvis and we'd visit families here in the community that their kids came to our church on our van ride on Wednesdays. And one of the families that we met, I'm not going to give you his real name, but we'll just call him Joe. I got to talking to him, and that following Sunday, the very next day after we had visited him, he came to church. And I was like, yes, all right, this is, this is what we're here for. This is the reason that we've moved here, is to reach people like Joe. And Joe's kids had been coming to our church for a while, but he and his wife had never come on a Sunday. And so when he and his wife showed up with the kids on that Sunday, it was like, all right, this is what we're, this is what we're here for. And Joe's family had a lot of problems, and they had a lot of financial struggles, and so the church helped them out with that, and we bought them some gas for their car, and there were a couple times that the deacons went and bought um, some groceries for them so they'd have food in the house, and he would stop by the house and want to talk to me about these problems that he was facing. He called me often on the phone. I felt like, yeah, this is ministry is. We're helping Joe and his family, and there was a Sunday that I was preaching, and when there's very few people out in the crowd, it's really easy to study faces. While I'm preaching, Joe's face just like turns really sour. And then in the middle of the service, before I even get done preaching, he gets up and he leaves. His family's still sitting there, but he's gone. So I catch up with him later, and I'm like, hey, did you get sick? What happened? 
And he begins to tell me, like, I was just really offended. I couldn't believe that you said X. And I was like, oh, this is good because I didn't say that. So I'll just explain to him that I never said that and we'll be good. There's that idealism and an optimism again. Like, I thought I could just explain. Well, I didn't say that. And he was convinced that he had heard what he heard. And the conversation didn't go well. There's no happy ending to the story. But one of the final things he said, he said, if you really cared about people, you would. And as I walked away from that conversation, as I walked to the car, I got to thinking, like, I have not spent more time with anybody in this community than I have with Joe and his family. And our church has not poured more resources into anyone than we have into Joe and his family. And if he walks away with this feeling that we don't care, man, can we really make a difference here? And a little piece of me died in that moment because my idealism and my optimism came crashing into reality. And that's where cynicism starts. Cynicism starts when our idealism crashes into realism. Now, to appreciate cynicism, you've got to understand where it comes from. You've got to understand what makes it start. You know, when that happened with Joe, I wasn't tempted to quit ministry. I wasn't about to walk away from serving God. I still loved God. I still loved serving his church. I still loved communicating the Bible in a compelling and clear way. I still loved people. That cynicism was, a little seed of it was planted in my life. Because when you care about something, when you're passionate about something, it doesn't, if it doesn't go well, that's when it can sting. You see, cynicism doesn't happen because you don't care. Cynicism happens because you do care. Cynicism happened because you have these ideals that you want to accomplish. You have this vision, this thing that you're trying to do, this difference that you want to make. And Solomon actually speaks of this in Scripture. He says in Ecclesiastes, which Ecclesiastes is like the cynic's guide to the galaxy. He's just kind of a jaded old teacher at this point when he writes this. And he he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the opening of, of his book, he says, "...all is vanity." What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? What is he saying? He's saying, what does it matter what we do? He goes on to say, like, the sun rises and it sets and the rains come and they go into the ocean and it just keeps going and going and we may live and die and then we go away. And what's the difference? I mean, you read Ecclesiastes and you're like, boy, this is super depressing. But then Solomon tells us why he feels this way. He says in verse 18... For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. The more you know, the more upsetting it can be. You see, cynicism starts when your idealism crashes into realism, when your visions crash into reality. And cynicism starts because you know too much. No one's cynical about something they don't know anything about. But when you know too much, when you get a picture of how the sausage is made, when you see what, like, what it's like behind the scenes, you're like, oh, man, right? I mean, how many of you like hot dogs, right? Just You eat hot dog, you try not to think about how the hot dog is made, right? I had a buddy in high school, Justin. His family, when they were on vacation, they were like an Amish country, and they went and watched how people made cheese. And he didn't eat cheese for like a month after that. <laughs> he was like, that's gross. It's rotten milk. You'd watch it curdle, you know? Like, ugh. 
And when we, we kind of get an idea of what's happening and we see what, what's real, what's going on in the world, cynicism starts to creep in. And cynicism doesn't happen because you don't care about it. It's because you do care and you know so much. No, no five-year-old is cynical, right? My, my five-year-old son, Lincoln, like, everything is awesome, you know? Like, he lives that way because he doesn't really know a whole lot. And once he gets to know about something, then he can be, oh, that's not awesome, That's not great. And the way for us to make sure that we never get cynical is to never grow up and never learn anything. Because if we don't know anything about it, we won't be cynical. But when you know and when you care, cynical can creep its way in. When you've experienced hurt, when you have cared and you've tried to help, when you've given and people turn on you and betray you, they take advantage of you, just out of self-preservation, you, give, you begin to protect yourself. You begin to, to put up some walls, try not to give away too much of your heart because you're convinced it's going to happen again. Well, our bodies are equipped with pain receptors. And pain receptors are a good thing because when you touch a hot stove, you learn very quickly that you shouldn't touch hot stoves, Right? Like, very few people make that mistake again and again because you learn very quickly from the pain, don't do that. That hurts. It's harmful. And our body is giving us an indicator, this will damage us. This will damage me. And it's good that we have that physically that keep us from doing things that will bring harm to ourselves. But unfortunately, that same reaction to pain happens emotionally. And when we experience emotional pain because someone hurts us, because someone takes advantage of us, we start to withdraw, we start to pull away. And cynicism grows in us. And the motto that a cynic lives by is, fool me once, shame on you. But fool me twice, shame on me. The mindset is, I'm never going to be fooled again. I'm never going to be betrayed again. I'm not going to allow anyone to take advantage of me again. And for you, it might be that you had that one relationship that it broke your heart, and you're like, I'm never getting in another relationship ever again. You fall in love with that one man, and he breaks your heart, and you're like, all men are evil. All men are awful. You had a coworker stab you in the back, or you had a girlfriend cheat on you, and you're like, never again. And what happens is cynicism projects past disappointments onto new situations. It takes the things that happened to you in the past and it projects them into what it is that you're going through right now. Yeah, I helped my cousin get a job, but then he gossiped about me behind my back with my coworkers. Or he played politics to take the position that I was trying to get. I'm never helping anybody get a job again. I did that once, not doing it again. What happened to me with that situation with Joe is that when other people showed up that had a kind of a similar story to Joe's, I was like, I know how this ends. I know where this is going. You ever watched a movie and you're like, I can already tell who the bad guy is here, right? Like, I know how this movie ends. I, I can already tell you what the end of this plot is. It's so predictable. And a cynic begins to believe that life is just predictable, that people are predictable, that they don't change, that they constantly do the same things over and over and over again. And because we've experienced these emotional pain points, we want to pull back. So 
So what happened to me is I was, I was projecting these past disappointments onto future situations, and I started to generalize, too. I was saying, hey, if, if, if people are like that, then this is probably what's going to end up happening. They're going to take advantage of us, and then they're going to leave. And so let's be careful. And you know what made it even tougher is that sometimes I was right. They do exactly the thing that I thought they were going to do. Like, yep, I knew it. They proved me right. Here's what I didn't realize, though. Is that by doing this, by holding back and hesitating, I was starting to close my heart off to people. Starting to not see the best in anyone. But look for all those warning signs in everyone. And I was also forgetting about the times that I was wrong. I had this confirmation bias, right? Like, yeah, I, I had a feeling. I knew it. And some of you have been there, right? Your brother started dating someone new, and you're like, I know she's bad news. <laughs> and then as soon as she does anything, you're like, I told you. I, I saw it coming. I like what Newhoff says in the book. He says, cynicism leads to generalizing, which is applying one particular situation to all situations, which brings about the death of trust and hope and belief. See, the the bad news on this is that a cynic begins to stop trusting people and stop hoping and stop believing. And what's sad is that cynics think that they're protecting themselves in the present based on the experiences from the past, But really, they're just infecting the future with the heartache of their past. Think about that. We think, oh, this is what happened to me back then. This is what happened to me then. So I'm going to protect myself now from that ever happening again. I'm going to make sure that that never happens again. But what we're doing by by doing that, we're holding on to that hurt. And we're just carrying it into the future. We're holding on to that heartache. We're holding on to that betrayal. We're holding on to that, that, that pain, and we're carrying it with us into the future, and we're applying it to every other situation, every other relationship. When you're cynical, you think you're protecting yourself in the present based on what you've experienced in the past, but you're really just infecting the future with the heartaches you've already gone through. And here's what happens. The things that we went through back then, they live with us. We carry them with us. The reason that we're doing this series is when I read through this book that Carrie Newhoff wrote, man, it it read my mail. It knew exactly what it was I was going through. And it talks about in the book that oftentimes the reason that we're cynical is that these things happened in the past and we we haven't grieved them. We haven't, we haven't dealt with them. We've just carried them with us into the present and into the future. And I read this chapter, and I closed the book, and I pulled out a notebook. And in the space of about 10 minutes, I was able to write down 100 names of people that had just walked away in similar situations to that one that I told you about from early on. I'm not talking about people that had showed up and they'd visited the church one time, and then we didn't see them again, or people that I met and then didn't come to church. I'm talking about people who were here, and we were helping them, and we were working with them. Maybe we had blessed them in some way, and then they just faded off into the distance. What I realized is those hundred names, the reason that I could write them down in 10 minutes without even really having to think about it is because I was carrying that with me all around, everywhere that I went. And so I took a moment right then and just asked the Lord to help me to, to leave that behind, 
to no longer allow those experiences, those times that people rejected me, rejected the message, rejected the church, to no longer allow that to shape the way that I would deal with people in the future. That was hard, but it was so helpful. And you know what? By doing that, I haven't exposed myself to all this brand new hurt. I've given myself permission to hope. I've given myself permission to see the best, to see what's good. You know, there's definitely value in being prepared for hardship, which, I mean, obviously this series of messages is didn't see it coming. It's all about helping you expect the unexpected, to be prepared for the obstacles that are coming. But when our hearts become closed, when our hearts become jaded, they become tough, we close ourselves off from other people, close ourselves off from hope, And eventually, it closes us off in our relationship with God. And I'm hoping that today, this morning, that there are some of you here, and you can totally resonate with what I'm talking about. That you can totally resonate with what I am speaking of. And and your experience wasn't in in the, the vein of church like mine was. Your experience was in some relationship, some long-term relationship, some family member, some coworker, and, and, and it jaded you and it has toughened your heart and caused you to close off to other people. And I want you to know that there is hope for cynics. That it's not once a cynic, always a cynic that you're not doomed to forever be a cynic, but that you can leave those things in the past and experience hope again. Now, the way that the world would tell you to deal with this is just look at the bright side, right? How many of you just like have had a moment where somebody's like, look at the bright side, and you're like, I don't want to look at the bright side. There is no bright side. There is no silver lining to this cloud. It's just all cloud. But the world will tell you, like, just, just focus on the positive. Focus on the bright side. Another thing that's really popular right now in our culture is you just need to put people, negative people out of your life. Just put negative people out of your life because they're bringing you down. If you just have you surround yourself with positive people and you'll be able to, to leave the negativity behind. Can I just point out that that's, that's very shallow? That there's something deeper. I want to push beyond that. And the answer to cynicism is not the death of of trust, and it's not a death of caring for other people or just saying, like, I don't care, whatever happens, happens. And it's also not just having a selective outlook, I'm just going to look at the things that are good, or I'm going to put out any negative influences or negative people. The cure for cynicism is a resilient hope. A resilient hope. And I'm going to talk to you about what real hope is. I'm currently reading Scott Harrison's autobiography, and Scott Harrison was this guy, he was a club promoter in New York. So, I mean, his job was to get celebrities into parties at these clubs. So he ran around with people like Jay-Z and models, and he found it incredibly lonely. And so, through some crazy circumstances, there was this guy who was threatening to kill him. He's like, I need to get out of New York for a while. He leaves. God begins to work in his heart, and he volunteers to serve on a ship that is a hospital for a year called Mercy Ships. And this ship goes to Africa, and they pull into a port, and they go into the city, and they invite people from the city into a soccer stadium where they do triage. They figure out the people that they can help, the surgeries that they can perform while they're there. 
And there's some people that they can't help because their condition is terminal. There's some people they can't help because there's just too many, and there's not enough surgeons, and there's not enough time, there's not enough room on their hospital ship. And Scott Harrison was there as a photographer. He was taking pictures of the day. And so he's there in the middle of the soccer stadium, and there are all these people. They're going through triage, all these people that they're trying to figure out, can we help this person? Is there something simple we can do right now? Is there something we can, a surgery we can perform on the ship? Or do we have to tell them that we're unable to help them? And there's just lines of people all around the soccer stadium that are making their way through nurse's station. And as it's getting towards the end of the day, Scott Harrison realizes we, we're not going to be able to see all these people. There are people with dire situations and dire conditions, and we are their only hope, and we're not going to be able to see everyone. And he found his way over to the tunnel of the soccer stadium, and he's just bawling. Like, how, how, we, what is the, we can't do anything. We can't help all of these people. And the doctor that ran the ship, he came over to him. He said, Scott, I want you to know that we're going to help as many of these people as we can. But we're offering them something more than medical care. We're offering them an eternal hope. Scott, you've got to focus on the hope. And when he was telling them to focus on the hope, he's not telling them to look on the bright side or to look at the positives. He's telling them to look at the hope that is above all hope. Now, I told you to turn to Ephesians 1 a while ago. I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture where Paul talks about that hope. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. Wherefore also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, I ceased not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of of him. Paul went through a lot of adversity. He went through a lot of difficulty. He was beaten. Uh, he, he was thrown in jail. He would eventually be beheaded for his witness for Christ. He faced a lot of difficulty, but when he heard the good news about what was happening in Ephesus, he was excited and he thanked God. But he wasn't just thankful for them. I want you to see what is underneath this. This is not just Paul looking at the bright side or looking for the good story or the good ending to the story. There's something underneath this that Paul is holding on to. Verse 18, he said, I'm praying that your eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, I am thankful for what God is doing in your life, and I hope that you, like me, will look at what is the real hope, the unending, resilient hope that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 19, he says, And the exceeding greatness of His power to us, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. How powerful is this, this, this majesty, this glory? How powerful is God? He raised Jesus from the dead. There was nothing that could hold Jesus back, not even death. You say, well, Pastor Daniel, I, I, I want to have hope, but man, there's just all these things. Jesus faced death. 
He was dead in the grave, buried for three days, and rose again. And I don't know what your story is, and I don't know what you're facing right now, but every one of you are alive, all right? So you're at least starting ahead of that. Jesus was dead, and the power worked in him to make him alive. And not only did God make him alive, but he set him at the right hand in heaven, raised him from the dead, and set him at the right hand in the heavenly places, Verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named and put all things under his feet. There is nothing that Jesus cannot overcome. There is nothing that Jesus is like, ah, that's too big of a problem. I can't handle it. He is able to overcome all things. And in a soccer stadium full of sick people where there are doctors and they can't reach everybody, Jesus can overcome all of that. Jesus can overcome not only what is wrong with their bodies, but can overcome what is wrong in their hearts and in their souls, can not only extend their life here on earth, but give them eternal life in heaven. There is nothing that Jesus can overcome. And we have a source of hope and power that no matter the situation, no matter how dark, no matter how dire the circumstances, it can give us reason for hope. And it's for that reason that when I pray with a family in the hospital and their child is sick, there's still hope to be had. It's the reason when I stand at a graveside with a family, there's still hope to be had. When I pray with someone that has lost a loved one, there is still hope to be had because he is over and above every circumstance. How did Paul keep his hope in the midst of everything? How did he keep from becoming cynical, though there were people who betrayed him, people who were working alongside of him and walked away? People were supposed to be his friends, and they turned him in. People that were supposed to help him, and they they, they forgot about him. How could he stay hopeful? How could he keep from becoming a cynic? Because he kept his eyes on hope, and he kept his eyes on Jesus. So when we sang earlier, Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. That's the reason I have hope no matter how dark the day. No matter how difficult, whatever it is that we might be facing. That day that I walked away from that conversation with Joe, the guy we're calling Joe. A little piece of me, a little piece of my idealism died. But what saved me from cynicism was that my hope is not in Joe. And Joe's hope is not in me. The only real hope is found in Jesus. It's in him. The tragedy is not that Joe walked away from me or from our church. The tragedy is if he walked away from Jesus. And the purpose of me being here is not for Joe, it's for Jesus. It's for him. Paul wrote the the words that I read to you earlier to the church at Ephesus. The young man who ministered with Paul and became the pastor at Ephesus, Paul would write him a letter. And he would say to him in that letter, Remember, don't forget, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Timothy knew that. That wasn't news to him. He's saying, don't forget, Jesus raised from the dead. No matter how hard things get, Timothy, don't forget, Jesus raised from the dead. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, even into jail. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. How did Paul keep from becoming a cynic? He kept his eyes on Jesus. And even when Paul was in prison, 
He kept his eyes on Jesus. When idealism meets realism, it's easy for us to slip into cynicism. Unless we've got a reason for hope in the face of reality. And Jesus is that reason. If you've got a reason to hope in spite of the brokenness of this world, that's a resilient hope. And remember what verse 22 says there in Ephesians 1. Hath put all things under his feet. Forget this. We don't have hope because we only look on the bright side or on the good things. We have hope because we trust in the one who's over all things. God has put everything under his feet. When I was a kid, my father worked at the Nashville airport for Delta Airlines. And part of his job was to help with the security This was before TSA was a federal program. And so he would run checks to make sure that the security agents were doing their job at the security checkpoints in the airport. And so he would use me on a couple of occasions. He used me to go through security with something that I should not have had, that security should catch to make sure that people aren't getting onto the plane. And I can remember, just crystal clear, this one time he he brought me to the airport. I'm going to go through security. And he hands me this little bag, this little suitcase, and in it is a hand grenade. Now, it's not an active hand grenade, all right? It's, it's been deactivated. It's, it's not going to kill anybody. But he gave me this bag, and here I am. I'm like 10 or 11, and I'm walking through security with a hand grenade in my bag. And the reason that my dad likes using me is because, I'm, I mean, I'm 10 or 11. You don't, you don't think, like, this is the kid that's going to bring a hand grenade on an airplane. And also, I was walking through like, I wasn't worried. Like, I wasn't sweating bullets, you know? Why? Because my dad was in charge. And it, I was okay. If they found it, that was a good thing. And I wasn't going to jail. I wasn't going to be in trouble. They passed the test. And because my dad was in charge, I could walk into airport security with a hand grenade, not worried confident that at the end of this, we're going to go get ice cream. (laughs) That is only possible because my dad was in charge. And the only reason that we can have hope in a broken and cynical world is because our father's in charge. And he has put all things under Jesus' feet. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.